Welcome back to Bible Love. It today is just me and Dr. Tony. We um, are missing Mary Balfour, but her husband, Murray, his mom passed away um, a few days ago. Uh, Her name was Martha. And so she is with family and we are going to carry on and we will hold her in prayer right now. So let us pray. Into your hands, O merciful Savior, we commend your servant, Martha. Acknowledge, we humbly beseech you, a sheep of your own fold, a lamb of your own flock, a sinner of your own redeeming. Receive her into the arms of your mercy, into the blessed rest of everlasting peace, and into the glorious company of the saints in light. Amen. Amen. It seems ironic, I guess, we're in one of the two, I think, books in the Bible named after women, and here's two guys going to talk about it. So we're we're starting into Esther, which is a book that I don't think we read too much. It's a great story. We'll get into the story. I've seen the Veggie Tale story of Esther. It's wonderful drama. Um, But again, as we do with these Bible overviews, we brought on Dr. Tony, who... Will you tell us about your new position first off before we dive into the book? Because you're in a new place. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Uh, we've wrapped up 20 years of wonderful memory at the uh, wonderful ministry at and wonderful memories at the First Baptist Church in Greenwood. And I'm actually scaling back a little bit. Um, beginning next Sunday, I'll be the interim pastor at First Baptist Church in Greenville. And so that'll be three days a week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, a um, little more time for the grandchildren. Um, and then eventually there'll be a, a geographical relocation to get us closer to where they are. So, so grateful for our time in, in Greenwood and what those folks mean to us and looking forward to the new chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Not to speak for Mary Balfour, but she's told me kind of from the moment she moved there that you reached out. You know, you're the Baptist preacher in town. She's a woman. She's an Episcopalian, right? Like kind of like oil and water, but y'all built a great friendship. I've been able to to see it from the outside. And I know that she's very appreciative of your ministry and your role in her life. Well, I, I value our friendship and our collegiality. We have we have lunch together every month. So yeah. that's uh, been a great thing. And and uh, we'll get to do that at least for a few more months. We're going to be in Greenwood for a little while. So that's a silver lining for me. Awesome. So. The book of Esther. What do we need to know, Dr. Tony? Well, uh, Alan and I were saying uh, just before we began what he began with, I'm, I'm sorry that Mary Balfour is not with us today because this is a, a book with a heroine. This is a book with a remarkable a female hero. You know, in terms of the things we usually talk about and think about, um, You know, when was the book written? Where was the book written? Well, interestingly, uh, with Esther, that's a little more complex because there are two versions of the book of Esther. The older version is found in the Hebrew Bible. It's found in the Old Testament and Protestant Bibles, and it is the shorter version. And apparently when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, and that, that Greek version is what makes it into the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, eventually the English version of the Catholic Bible, 
Uh, they added quite a bit to the story. It's very interesting. And ostensibly, one of the reasons they do that, the original version makes no explicit reference to God. The Hebrew Elohim, Elohim, God, Adonai, Lord, Yahweh, the name of God, those don't appear in Esther, uh, which is very unique. And I think for that reason, Esther is one of the last books really to be accepted into the Hebrew canon. But gratefully, it did take it in. Um, we, we don't know who wrote either version. Um, I would date the original story fourth or third century BCE, and then the additions come a century or two later. And, and, and not knowing those details in no way diminishes from the story. The story is set in Persia after the Jewish exile. With Ezra and Nehemiah, we talked about how After the long Babylonian exile, Cyrus of Persia takes over the Babylonian kingdom. And in 538 B.C., he issues the edict of Cyrus that lets the Jews begin to go back to Jerusalem and to the surrounding area. And we talked last time about how they go home in four waves. The third wave was the wave led by Ezra. And the king in the story of Esther is the king who sends Ezra back to Jerusalem, gives him authority to collect revenue to help with uh, the rebuilding or refurbishment of the temple and gives him the authority to appoint people to enforce the Jewish law, the law of Moses. This king is called Ahasuerus in the book of Esther. Um, That's a Hebrew name. He's also known by the Greek name Xerxes. And uh, he is the grandson, through his mother, he is the grandson of Cyrus, the one whose edict lets the Jews go back to, to Jerusalem and Judea in the first place. So all of that's really very interesting to me. Um, our story is set in Susa, in the kingdom of Persia. Susa is where the winter palace of the Persian kings was, and that's where our story takes place. Because the book of Esther is not as well known, Alan and I thought we might just give you a quick overview of the cast of characters. Esther, of course, is the heroine. She is portrayed as wise, as courageous, as uh, devout. Um, All of the things that the hero of any story might be, Esther is. Esther's parents have died as our story begins, and she has been adopted by a cousin named Mordecai. And even though Esther is the heroine of the story, Mordecai is the patriarch of the family, and in the ancient Jewish world, that was significant. And for the first part of the story, he kind of guides her. But then there's this moment in the story when that changes, and all of a sudden she's saying to him, well, this is what you and the people need to be doing because she has stepped to the forefront with this plan. Uh, The king, Ahasuerus, um, the early chapters give great detail about how lavishly wealthy he is, and he likes to show that off. He's, He's the king of the greatest empire in the world at that time, so he's also very powerful. So there's this tension between his wealth and his power on the one hand, but then on the personal level, 
he just doesn't come off very well. He's, he's, he's lacking in character. He's prone to excess. Uh, he's very vain, very prideful, uh, and that certainly plays into the story. No story like this would be complete without a villain, and the villain in this case is a man named Haman. He rises to the highest possible position in the the king's, what we would call cabinet or or group of advisors. And like the king, and I think like many powerful people, you know, who was it that says power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Was that Nietzsche? Uh, Both both Ahasuerus and Haman display some of that. Um, And then kind of the little-known character, but the unsung heroine of this story, I think, is Queen Vashti. Uh, she is the king of, of Ahasuerus as uh, the story begins. So the story has, and by the way, Esther is great writing. It is great narrative, character development, plot development, the way it will create uh, a moment of tension and then switch to a new subplot so that tension doesn't get resolved. Alan and I were talking about how it's just like television or movies today. But the story begins with the queen being deposed. The king is having this huge banquet, multiple days and nights. He's brought in all these impressive people. He's got all of his gold plates and sterling silver uh, silverware and crystal goblets out for everybody to see. And a week into this party, he gets drunk and decides with everything else he has shown off, he wants to show off the queen and summons her to come so that she can be ogled by all of these powerful men. And she says, no, I'm not doing that. And she is a woman of principle and a woman of courage, even though it cost her dearly. She is deposed. She disappears from the story and loses her position of real significance in the story. Um, That's terrible, Uh, completely patriarchal, even though that was typical in the ancient world. It's still uneasy for us. And so, again, this is where we want Mary Balfour to be able to chime in on all of this. Um, and it's equally bad the way they go about finding a new queen. Uh, they have a beauty contest. I mean, that's all you can call it. Um, they sequester these women for 12 months for what the text calls beauty treatments, oils, perfumes, cosmetics, If you want to read a little in between the lines, which I think we're allowed to do, probably they're also sequestered for 12 months to make sure nobody's pregnant. Um, But at the end of that, Esther becomes the queen. And so it seems to happen in a really bad way. And yet, you know, here again, God is going to work for good. So we switch now from that subplot relating to one queen going away and Esther becoming queen to the main story, which is a story of uh, intrigue from a Jewish perspective in a foreign court. So there are echoes of Joseph here. Joseph ends up in the court of Egypt. There are echoes of Daniel here. He ends up in the court of the Persian Median Empire. Um, But Haman, 
um, has become a very powerful man. He thinks he's the main character in the story. In fact, Esther and Mordecai are the main characters in the story. As the story begins, Mordecai discovers a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. And he tells Esther, who tells the king, and the king's life is saved. And at first, that seems like that's inconsequential, but we'll come back to that. Meanwhile, Haman now rises to this very significant position and being the second most powerful kingdom, a person in the kingdom, everywhere he goes, he expects people to bow down to him. And I expect almost everybody did. But Mordecai will not do that. Jews do not bow down to people. Reverence is for God and God alone. Haman, being vindictive and a little bigoted, decides not only to destroy Mordecai, but to destroy all of the Jews throughout the kingdom. You would be talking about millions of people. And to fix the date for this pogrom, this mass extermination, he casts what in English we call a lot. You've heard about casting lots in the Bible. The plural of per in Hebrew is purim, and that will give its name to the festival at the end of our story. So um, he sends out this royal decree. The lot falls on uh, the 13th day of the 12th month. So it's 11 months away. Again, that gives time now for the story to unfold, for the tension to build. But Haman sends out this letter saying, on this date, we're going to kill all of the Jewish people in the kingdom, and I want our people hmm, to be ready. Uh, Meanwhile, evidence of the great writing in this story, um, this plot that Mordecai foiled at the beginning of the story Uh, the king becomes aware that Mordecai is the one who is responsible for saving his life. So Ahasuerus and Esther are having this big banquet. Haman is invited. The king says to Haman, what should the king do to bestow honor upon a man whom he values among everyone else? And Haman thinks the king is talking about himself. (laughs) So he says all of the the best honors that he can think of, garments and the royal horse and a parade through town and great wealth. And, of course, it turns out that the king was not asking about Haman. He was asking what he could do for Mordecai. And in this wonderful irony, Haman has to do for Mordecai all of the things he was hoping to have done for himself. Of course, on the level of the narrative, that only increases his bigotry and his hatred. So the, the climactic part of the story, after this decree with the forthcoming annihilation of the Jews goes out, uh, Mordecai puts on sackcloth and ashes. He enters into a, a time of prayer and wailing. And one of these interesting details He can't go see Esther because he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. You're not permitted on the royal grounds. So he sends her word. She comes out to meet him. 
He helps her understand what's happening and says, you've got to go to the king and, and tell him about this. The difficulty is in Persian law, nobody goes to the king. You only see the king if you are summoned by the king, including the queen. And as a way of discouraging this, if you go see the king, you don't get charged with the crime. And then there's a trial and a jury of your peers. What the law says, you will be executed, period, unless the king instantly decides to grant you clemency by extending the royal scepter to you. So Esther, on the one hand, knows she needs to go see the king to speak up for her people. On the other hand, she's literally risking her life. And so the two, I think, most famous verses in Esther take place during this conversation between Mordecai and Esther. He says to her, who knows but what you were put in this position for such a time as this. So again, God is not explicitly mentioned, but anybody of a Jewish background or for that matter, a Christian background understands what Mordecai is saying, that God has put you here for a reason. And then Esther um, pretty quickly absorbs not only the situation, but determines that saving her people is more valuable than her own life. I mean, she is a Messiah type figure in that regard. Um, and she says, I will go to see the king. If I die, I die. I mean, it's, a, it's a remarkable and kind of, kind of courageous moment. So without completely spoiling the story, um, in the end, Esther figures out a way to um, approach the king, to let the king know uh, what what Haman is planning, and only now reveals that she herself is Jewish. Up to this point in the story, that has been hidden from the king. Remember, the Persian Empire has many people from many places, many what we would call ethnicities. Um, And so once the king realized that Haman's plot is against the queen and her people, um, he, of course, sides with the with the queen and um, one of the purposes of the book of Esther is to explain the birth of the festival known as Purim because he cast the pur, the lot to choose the date that ends up being the date that the Jewish people are saved. And this big religious festival is established at the end of the book. And by the way, um, in the Hebrew Bible, there is one book of the Bible that corresponds to the five major festivals within Judaism. And those five books are known as the festal scrolls. They are the scrolls connected to the festival. And of course, Esther is um, the, the scroll connected to the festival of Purim. So that's a lot for me, Alan. What, what do you want to chime in with here? No, I think it, anything you read on Esther immediately talks about the fact that God's not mentioned. Like that's the defining character. I think that's, to me, I think that's very limiting on what we view as God's presence in something, right? Like 
it's almost common grace, right? Like God is present and active and a lot of things where we might not think God is present and active. And we see that here. Absolutely. Were you not what our Methodist friends? Yeah. What our Methodist friends call prevenient grace, prevenient grace. Yeah. I mean, God God there before we did. Yeah. We, as if we need to name God for God. to Right. And I, I, in the notes that I'm, Alan's going to make available to you, I called it attention. I mean, it is attention. It is, it is unusual that God would not be mentioned. On the other hand, the story is set in motion because Mordecai won't bow down to Haman. Well, why is that? Because he worships God. The phrase, the Jews, is mentioned 41 times in the book. I mean, you can't overlook that. This is the story about a particular people and by definition about their God. Uh, prayer, sackcloth, ashes, fasting, all of those things are, are mentioned explicitly in the story. Uh, clearly, the people who made um, the additions to the book of Esther were, were very aware of this and, um, as some scholars would say, overcompensated. <laughs> um, but but, but here, here again is a very interesting question for modern disciples. The Bible teaches us that we shouldn't run off without God. It is folly to think that in my wisdom and my power, I can do what I need to do to get through the day, much less to get through life. On the other hand, the Bible also teaches us that we should not sit back and expect God to drop everything in our laps. So this tension or complementary tandem of uh, God's power and grace on the one hand, and human initiative using the gifts and abilities and wisdom that God has given us. These things come together over and over in Scripture and over and over in real life. And so Esther is one of those stories where the human initiative may be in the foreground, um, but, you know, God is there. And don't we all have seasons of life where that's true and seasons of life where the other is true? Yeah, it makes me think, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, there's lots of stories of kings who need to have their hearts changed, particularly around the Hebrew people or pharaohs, right? Right. For Pharaoh, it took magic tricks, miracles. Here, for Xerxes, it takes a person, a relationship. Yeah, someone well, with that's the courage, a good word, Alan. The God-given courage, right? This isn't just someone of their own free will. I think Esther was inspired to do this. But we didn't need frogs and bloody water and all of that. We just needed someone to say, look at me, I'm a person. And you can change a heart that way, too. Oh, that's a good word. That's a good word. Yeah. Um, there, there's echoes of some other stories. Um, at, at one point, um, Ahasuerus gets drunk. He's at a big party. He wants to impress his friends. And he's so smitten with the woman that he promises her anything up to half of his kingdom. Well, if you've read the Gospels, uh, that sadly, uh, a very similar situations in, ends in the death of John the Baptist. It is because Herod Antipas is at a party trying to impress his friends, 
gets drunk, is smitten by a woman, and promises her anything up to half of his kingdom. So that's an interesting um, echo of another story. Um, the other thing that I find really interesting, imagine, you know, we're reading this as 21st century Christians, but imagine the Jewish people who were reading this at the time it was written or at the time these events taken place. I don't think there's any more important question in the life of the Jewish people at, at the time this story takes place than this. In, in this post-exilic world, what does it mean to be a faithful Jew? The Jews are now scattered. For the ones who are in Jerusalem and get to go to temple, that question is pretty clear. But what if you're not in Jerusalem? And there are at least three fairly distinct answers to that in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you know, the book of Daniel, the, the, the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel himself really um, make very visible their Jewish identity. They refuse to eat the other food. They keep the Jewish kosher laws. They keep the Jewish prayer practices, all of those things. So Daniel says being a Jew in the post-exilic world means be distinct, you know, kind of stand out. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, as we saw last time, take that distinction to such a degree that they break up families. They make men divorce their wives and, and send their children away. Um, you know, that, that we, I mean, we talked about how terrible that is last time. Here in Esther, it's very different. She not only lives where she is, it's because you know, contrast Ezra and Nehemiah. It's because she marries a foreigner that God's people are saved. That's a very different scenario. Um, she doesn't make her Jewish identity distinct. The plainest reading of the text was she doesn't follow the kosher laws. She eats what they bring her. And all of that becomes part of how God delivers the people. So, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, once again, what do we do about any given situation? There's this temptation to say, just do what the Bible says. But the Bible is not of one mind. And the answer varies depending on a number of things, particular context, particular people, particular, particular situations. So you come back and say, well, then how do we decide? If, for example, we have three different answers from the Bible, how do we decide? Well, I'm going to sound this trumpet one more time. We have the great good fortune of living on this side of Jesus. And so we decide through the Jesus test. Yeah, absolutely. I think if there's something we've learned this journey through the Bible so far is it's not as simple as the Bible tells me so. That's something cute we tell children that maybe we need to stop telling children because it's really complicated because last time we talked about purity and set apartness. This time we're talking about cohabitation and how you live with difference. And that tension will be present throughout. Jesus has a lot to say about that. And so when we get to the gospels and you walk us through those, we'll get to hear what Jesus says on the other side of this whole operation. Thank you uh, for your time, Tony. I look forward Always to enjoy. Yeah. When Mary Balfour is back, we'll dive in. I'll get her to talk about 
the view as a woman of what it's like that this whole operation yeah, sure. started because one woman decided not to be objectified and then another woman won a beauty contest and then all of a sudden God's work is uh, active through super um, patriarchal means. So always a pleasure. Thank you Same listeners. As, as always, we love you, but most importantly, God does.